this thing on, can you hear me? Awesome. Okay, so here we go. Hopefully this works. If technology dies on me this morning, I'm trying to be Matt Dick. I'm using an iPad up here instead of paper. And if it dies, we'll just go to prayer and we'll be done. <laughs> Which some of you are hoping comes quick. So, um, you know, this is the second week in the series of Life Hacks. And last week, actually one of the youth said, I, I wasn't here, we were away. We were out in BC, we came back, and then I heard from one of the youth that we had a special guest speaker last week. How many of you guys were here last Sunday? Show of hands, yeah. So, so he's like, you wouldn't believe it. We had a special guest speaker. I'm like, really? And then I started to get nervous. I'm like, oh, I gotta follow some special guy. They're like, yeah, Freddie Mercury. <laughs> Freddie Mercury was speaking. I'm like, I thought he was dead. Apparently not. Anyway, I went and watched the video online. You can see the thing, and I took a few screenshots. And, you know, here... <laughs> And I found, I uh, got this screenshot, and, it, and it, it's not Freddy, it's Colton. It doesn't even, doesn't even look like Freddy. Like, seriously, there's Freddie Mercury, and there's Colton. Freddy, Colton. Man, Freddy, <laughs> I love this. Freddie Colton. Anyway, thanks, thanks Colton for doing that. Thanks for wearing Angel's t-shirt. <laughs> I love it. Uh, life hack. So I got a great life hack. Um, I'm a construction guy, so I like to look good every day when I head to the job site, right? And when my shirt's wrinkled, I panic in the morning. And so what do I do? I don't have time to iron. I'm on my way out the door, I get two ice cubes, I throw them in the dryer along with my shirt, put it on high for five minutes, and guess what? Ice cubes turn to steam, wrinkle-free. Huh? How sweet is that? Is that a good one? How many of you have done that? Nobody. Okay. <laughs> Another one. I need a, I need a helper on stage. Uh, Hudson Weeb. Are you here, Hudson? He came to me this morning and said, can I volunteer on stage? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I could use you. So I've got my work tool here, and I've got a jug. Um, so you don't have a microphone, so you're just going to have to yell so everybody can hear you. What is, what is this? 1% chocolate milk jug. Right. 1%? Okay. And uh, yeah, um, actually, no. It's not. See what this is, I'm going to take my drill here, and actually what happens is I just... I learned this from my friend Byron in Mexico last year. And so what I need you to do to come over here, actually, Hudson. So I'll show you how this works. I'll just get you to come right over here for me. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. No, just come here. Just come here. Come here. Why are you so tall? <laughs> anyway, but you're a lovely assistant, so thank you. Um, just kneel down a little bit so I can get, like, just feel like I'm not so short, because I'm short. My kids are mad at me because I'm short and they're short. So what this turns into, actually, Byron shows me, he brings me in, we're in, we're in the shower, and it's, uh, that sounds weird. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> Mexico trip, communal shower, that sounds worse. 
you wear your swimming suit, and you guys have been to Mexico. A lot of you have been to Mexico, right? So you're in a swimming suit, you're showering, everybody's got these solar things, the solar bag, solar shower, you heat it up in the, in the daytime. Hopefully nobody's stolen it and hasn't gone flat during the day. You hook it up, and then uh, you go over shower, and it's nice and warm, right? Well, Byron's sitting there with his jug, and I went in, and I didn't have any, uh, I was just kind of borrowing a friend's. He's like, come over here, come over here, you can, you can use my milk jug shower. I'm like, come on, man. It's not, that's, not, that's not a good shower. And he's like, no, trust me, trust me. So he just takes the shower, and he just goes like this. He just, he's like, he's like that, and it's okay, it's okay. It's just water. He placed the milk with water. There wasn't much. There was just kind of that crusty milk on the bottom, but it was fine. And so what happened here, it, what, I, I, he pours it on me. It's kind of cool. The sun's setting in Mexico. And it was the best shower I ever felt because, here's the hack. You can go. <laughs> yeah, big round of applause. Because, and I'll tell you this, but you, nobody, you can't do this. Anybody, any youth who go to Mexico, plug your ears right now. But here's the hack for the adults. The leaders are only allowed to do this. He went to the eating tent and filled it up half with boiling water from the tea department, right? And the other half with the cold water. And it was so nice. It was awesome. So Byron and I, he's pouring the on, and I was, it was the greatest moment. I'd like to read these verses here to you. Um, you have heard the law say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you any different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So, talk this morning about a life hack that Jesus came up with. See how he starts there? He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Love your neighbor, that was in the Old Testament, so he's quoting scripture, but then the, love, the hate your enemy part wasn't in scripture, but it was kind of assumed in that culture, right? That's what you did to your enemies. You loved your neighbor, but you hated your enemies, and that's kind of the way you lived your life, right? I wonder if that's not how sometimes we live our lives here too. Um, but then Jesus says, uh, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So he's got this hack, he's saying, okay, life works so-so this way, but if we change it, if we go with this new way, then life actually works better. It's a life hack called loving your enemies, okay? Um, you know, when I look around at the world today, I think, uh, I feel like we, um, the world as a whole more often than not, sticks with the same principle of loving your neighbor, your friend, but hating your enemy. And when I look around, I see so much hate, so much violence, so much hurt, and I wonder, is it working? 
to get back at your enemy. I wonder if the people, where was it? I just read the news last night, like Afghanistan. And something happened there, like a suicide bomb attack in Afghanistan, I think, last night. And, and in, in the states, our neighbors to the south of us, there's a couple attacks. Like, people that see their enemies as somebody to get back at, I wonder if you ask the families and friends of the people um, in some of those towns, like Dayton, Ohio, or El Paso, how they think that system is working, where you love your friends, but you hate your enemies. I'm not sure that they'd agree that it's a good system anymore. So the question is, here's the, here's the life hack, but does it even work? Does loving your enemies even work? So that's what I want to kind of dig into. Is it just foolishness? Is it naivety? So let's, th- let's think, first of all, who are our enemies. Well, like the reality is we probably, all of us are an enemy to somebody, and we all have some sort of enemy out there, right? So um, let's think globally. Um, there's probably a nation, a country, that you would say, yeah, that, that enemy, that's an enemy of mine, an enemy of ours. Um, maybe a people group, or maybe even just a religion comes to mind. Uh, on a grand scale, on a global scale. Bring it closer to home and you think, you know, I got, you know, I got enemies that maybe, maybe they just don't agree with me in some way. Maybe it's an enemy, a coworker, or somebody that is, maybe it's just people that live in a different area of the city than us. We feel like they're maybe our enemies. Maybe, and I'm not sure why this is, but some of you guys think that Saskatchewan is your enemy. And it's not. Like, just because we continually put out the greatest football team in CFL history, I don't understand why you think we're enemies. We're the kindest people you'll ever meet. (laughs) So globally, you know, closer to home and then maybe right at home. Sometimes our enemies are found living right in the same house as we live in. Carrie Lynn and I have sat with a number of couples whose marriages are falling apart over the years. And when, you sit at, when we sit in that living room, we always drive away and we're like, that was, that was the living room from hell. The hurt that one spouse has done to another, the hurt that's been given back from that other spouse, it's so deep, it hurts so much, it's awful. And in that place and in that time, and I think we've all been there at some level in some living room or some bedroom or some place in our home, we've been face to face with the enemy, with an enemy. Friends, relatives, co-workers, classmates. Generally speaking, I think at a high level, there's probably three ways that humanity that people have dealt with their enemies over history. So I'd like to examine those ways a little bit. The first being pacifism. Say pacifism. The idea there is that when confronted with the enemy, you do nothing. You stand back, you get out of the way. If somebody's coming, an aggressor or an enemy is coming to harm you, to harm your family, to harm your neighbor, to harm your friends, You just stay out of the way, you stay silent, and you don't do anything. You just get out of the way. A 
a lot of people hold to this. And it's the way they live their lives and the way they deal with their enemies. I think the other way that we, that we respond is violence. And this is the one I think the world has really adopted well for a long time. Respond to enemies with violence. This is the one that on a global scale and a local scale, I think we do this. And I think, unfortunately, sometimes the church, oftentimes the church, has adopted this method as well. Returning evil for evil. Your enemy has inflicted something, some harm, some unkindness, some atrocity onto you. And then often we retaliate back by getting them back. We want to get them back, right? Like, doesn't that, okay, I hope I'm not the only one, but doesn't it feel good uh, to get somebody back? Like, there's this thing in a human being, I think, that there's this deep desire for, and we call it justice, but it's this desire that comes so quickly, I find, in my heart to get that person back that wronged me. But it seems to go against Jesus' teaching. How can we love our enemies while causing them harm? So what do we do? Third option. Maybe. Reminds me of a story. I was driving the other day. I'm driving up uh, Canyon Meadows, and there's this merge lane when you come onto Canyon Meadows, and I'm trying to get in, and there's lots of cars, and you, you, you know what that's like when you're trying to get in off the merge lane, and you know when those people that don't want to let you in? You, you follow me? And they're going, and they stick like, they're like three feet from the bumper of the guy in front of them. Like, why won't you just let me in? What have I done to wrong you? <laughs> you don't even know me. I'm a nice guy, and you won't let me in. And I'm cruising up the thing, and I've got my signal light, and I know they see the signal because they just stare straight ahead. And they're like, I'm staying this close. I'm just driving straight ahead. And I look over. I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> let me in. One car goes by. Two cars go by. Third car goes by. By then, I'm just, I'm starting to get upset. And, and I do this. When they drive by, I look over, and I lift my arm. I'm like, come on, man. Throw me a bone. Let me in. And the guy turns to me and gives me the finger. True story. I'm like, I'm just trying to merge in. Why are you giving me the finger? Because I have my hands in the air. Don't worry, I was driving with my knee. <laughs> Which I'm really good at, because then you can text with both hands, right? <laughs> he goes by. I'm like, oh, I was livid. All I can see is that finger pointing at me. And I, I'm like... Oh yeah, here it is. I'm getting them back, right? What do you do? You get them back. I'm, I get in finally. I'm getting in the other lane. I'm going to cruise right by them. And I'm going to get up. I'm going to get in front of them. And then you know what I'm going to do. I'm going to lock my brakes up. He's going to crash into me. You guys aren't laughing anymore. You're like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> okay, but I'm driving up and then I'm convicted. You know how time slows down in those moments? And I'm convicted because I'm talking about loving your enemies. And I'm like, oh, I shouldn't do that. I should love him. So I pull up and I get up beside and I'm about to wave. And thank goodness I didn't play out what I was going to play out in my mind. Because Pastor Chris <laughs> is the driver. <laughs> I'm like, come on, buddy. <laughs> Why would you do that to me? So I wave and he waves back and... I'm teasing. He didn't do that. You don't, need to, you don't need to email the 
the church about that. I'm just teasing. But the merge thing did happen to me, and I did get the finger, but it wasn't Chris. It was Matt. So is there a third way? Say third way. I think Jesus is going after a third way here somehow. Is there another option? Let's read the verse together, okay? But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. So he's not ignoring the enemy here. He's saying to love, and I think love is a verb, right? Love is an action. Love is something you do to somebody. You can't love somebody if you're just, if you ignore and pretend they don't exist, like pacifism. But he's also not retaliating in violence, right? He's not taking option two, violence. No retaliation there. Love and prayer, in my mind, don't, um, don't have anything to do with violence. So some sort of third way here we'll try to unpack. Gandhi said, if there are only two options, then of course one should kill to resist evil. That's an interesting statement, hey? If there's only option of pacifism, doing nothing, or violence, then of course the only option then is to kill to resist evil. But he believed in some sort of third way. I think Well said it's a vigorous, nonviolent resistance to the aggressor. See, Gandhi led a revolt, a nonviolent revolt and movement to free India from British rule. He actually did it, right? But then we think, well, maybe that's just one guy, one time. It won't work again. Our troubles today are way too big to solve by any other means. All we can do is one of the first two options. The third way, whatever that is, it doesn't work. I did some study. I did some research. There's about 323 major campaigns in the last 100 years or so. And what they've found is that the ones that, are, that use nonviolence to work towards reconciliation are far more likely to leave or end up in a peaceful state after the fact, okay? The ones that use violence all too often end up with just a different type of violent or hurtful community. Does that make sense? Are you with me? They did this study in 323. The majority of ones that use nonviolence ended up with a peaceful community after the fact. So actually, there is some proof that these, that the third way um, doesn't, or does work actually. So I'd like to have a closer look. I'd like to start with Jesus, good place to start, and then I'd like to kind of arch through time up until today. So we're gonna kind of fly through history and look at how Christians, starting with Jesus, have viewed this over time, and what sort of things did they say along the process? Okay? So here we go. So let's start with who Jesus' enemies were. Who were they? Samaritans. Say Samaritans. You know why they were you know why they were Jesus' enemy or a Jew's enemy? They lived next door. They they 
mixed and married with the Assyrians. They were half-breed Jews. They twisted the religion. They had their own temple set up. What the Jews did not like having the temple in Jerusalem. They, they would have, often have violent outbreaks where one village would be attacked and then the Jews would do that back to the, like Samaritans were hated. They were the lowest of all, right? Hated. It was acceptable and the norm to hate your Samaritan neighbor next door. The woman at the well, a Samaritan woman. Do you remember that story? What does Jesus do? He comes up. His disciples are somewhere else. He comes down. He sits down with her. Sits down at the well. Initiates conversation. Says, hey, can I have a drink? You know what she says? I can't give you a drink. You're a Jew. We're not even supposed to be talking. Forget the fact that I'm a female and you're a male. And in that cultural setting, that wasn't appropriate to be doing that. But I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. We don't like each other. I'm not giving you any water. And what does Jesus do? He continues to chat with her. He continues to pursue conversation, get to know her, and care. How about the parable of the Good Samaritan? Remember that one? Probably the most famous parable Jesus ever told. And if, if I was giving advice to Jesus, and, I was gonna, and he was going to tell the most famous parable he ever told, I would have told him, hey, don't use your enemy as the hero of the story. If you're trying to tell this story to Jews, don't use a Samaritan as the hero. In fact, he doesn't just use a Samaritan as the hero. He makes the Jews in the story the ones who are unkind. Not good. Right? And then he ends it off by saying, now go and do likewise. That's profound, hey? So he's with his Jewish followers and tells them a story about a Samaritan who they all hate and then says at the end, follow his example. The guy who corrupted our religion, who came and attacked my village, follow that guy. He's got something. So he builds up the Samaritan. There's a really interesting story that I want to read. He turned towards Jerusalem. So this is Jesus talking in Luke chapter 9. And and, and he's heading with his disciples towards Jerusalem. Okay, So he's traveling and he's traveling through Samaria. Um, He sent men on ahead of him. They came to a town in Samaria where they got... Uh, things ready for Jesus, or there they got things ready for Jesus. The people did not want him there because they knew he was on his way to Jerusalem. Okay, so you with me here? He's going to stop in a town in Samaria. They go ahead to get things ready. The people aren't happy about it because they know he's on the way to Jerusalem. Like the the hate is, it's a real deal there, right? we know that you're Jews and you're traveling to Jerusalem to worship God there and we don't even want you staying in our town if you're on the way to do that, right? So they didn't want him. And then uh, James and John, his followers, saw this. They said, Lord, do you want us to speak so fire will come down from heaven and burn them up as Elijah did? Jesus turned and spoke sharp words to them. He said, you do not know what kind of spirit you have. 
The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's life. He came to save them from the punishment of sin. They went on their way to another town. So what's going on here? In 2 Kings chapter 1, there's a story of Elijah. And he ticked off the king. Because he told the king, hey, you shouldn't be listening to false gods, false prophets, seers, those kind of guys that you're getting wisdom from. They are not following God, so don't follow their lead, right? So Elijah says, he, he you know, kind of speaks condemnation. He's like, you can't do that anymore. And it ticked off the king. So Elijah gets out of Dodge, heads out of there, heads out of town. What does the king do? The king retaliates. He gets his captain of the army and 50 of his soldiers, and they head out down the road to chase down Elijah. And here's what's really fascinating. That story that we just read with James and John and Jesus, that region is the same geographical region that this event took place hundreds of years ago with Elijah. So James and John probably had this on their mind. They're like, this is from the scriptures. I remember this time. We're actually in the place where this happened. We're in the neighborhood. And here's what Elijah did. When he saw the soldiers coming, he turned and he, and he, and he spoke fire from heaven. Down it came, burned up all 51 men. Gone. Not one of them lived. So James and John are like, this is perfect. This is what we'll do to get them back, right? But Jesus says, no, we're going to do something a little different here. He changed the norm. He changed the way that... uh, Things had always been done. I mean, for goodness sakes, it was in the Bible. Elijah did that and it was in the Bible. You can read it. So isn't that how we should respond to our enemies today? We think back to that first verse we read from the Sermon on the Mount. But I say, and then he changed the standard, didn't he? But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Go against the grain. Treat them differently than you ever have before. Just because it's how you've always treated an enemy doesn't mean that you should continue to do so. Just because it seems acceptable, just because you can read a verse in the Bible that seems to justify it, Jesus is saying, no, things are changing. Who else are enemies? Ooh, the Romans for sure, right? Occupying nation of Israel. Probably one of the most violent nations that ever was. The Roman Empire. They were enemies. People, I mean, right up to the point Jesus went to the cross, his disciples were still hoping that he would take command, make, get an army, and kick out Rome, right? They were their enemies, no doubt about it. You remember the story of the centurion? Officer, he's, this, he's a leader, a commander in the army, and he says, he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I have a kid in my home, in my household that's sick. Could you help him? And he says, but you don't even have to go. Like, I don't want to trouble you with more than you need to. You don't even have to come to my house. He said, I know how this works. I'm a commander. If I say to one of my guys, you do this and you do that, they go and do it and it happens. You're the same. If you say, you're that kid in my household is healed. I know he's healed. Cool, eh? So here we have a Roman who the people of Jesus despised them. 
And what does Jesus do? Well, at the end of the story, you find out that the kid's healed. But also Jesus says something really cool. He says, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. He compliments the guy. Lifts him up. I haven't found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I bet that made some people around him mad. Remember the garden? The night that he was betrayed, the soldiers came. Roman soldiers came. Right? And remember, the disciples are still hoping that he fights back and kicks out the Romans. The Roman soldiers come. What does Peter do? Remember? Peter cuts off this ear of the soldier, right? And what does Jesus do? He picks up, he picks up the ear and he puts it back on. So in that moment, there's this beautiful moment of kingdom coming. Things put back to the right way. And then he turns to Peter and he says, put down your sword. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Put it away. Let's have a quick look at the early church, first few hundred years. Okay? Um, and I think for the first part of the church history, they were mainly nonviolent, which is really interesting. They seem to adopt a third way that seemed to have gotten lost uh, later on in years. But there's a few people, we call them church fathers or church leaders from those early three, four hundred years. And we have writings. And here's some of the writings I came across as I prepared. This is by Justin Martyr in 138 AD. We who used to kill one another do not make war on our enemies. We refuse to tell lies or deceive our inquisitors. We prefer to die acknowledging Christ. That's about a hundred years after Jesus was around. You know his last name? Didn't really have last names back then. But he's called Justin Martyr because he died at the hands of the Romans for his faith in Jesus. In 165, he was killed. Tertullian, 155 to 230 AD. How will any Christian engage in war without the sword which the Lord has taken away? The Lord, by disarming Peter, disarmed every soldier. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? He assumed that when he told Peter to put his sword down, he was speaking to everybody that followed Jesus, not just Peter. Hmm. Origin of Alexandria. We have come in accordance with the counsel of Jesus to cut down our arrogant swords into plowshares. And we convert into sickles the spears we formerly used in fighting. For we no longer take swords against nation, nor do we learn any more to make war, having become sons of peace for the sake of Jesus, who is our Lord. Back in Isaiah, there's a prophecy written hundreds of years before that talks about God's coming kingdom. Which Jesus said, hey, I'm, I'm preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, which is at hand. It's here. It's coming now. Okay? And hundreds of years before... Um, Isaiah prophesies this picture of that coming kingdom and he says a place of peace. And you'll take, you'll take your swords and you'll bang them into plowshares. You'll take your weapons that harm people and you'll turn them into gardening tools that only help life grow. That's what the future kingdom will look like. 
And I think sometimes the church has said, yeah, oh, I like that idea. I can't wait to do that sometime, maybe in heaven in the future. But see, the church, the early church said, no, we do that today. Because we live in God's kingdom the way God wants it to be today. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not, thy kingdom is out there somewhere, and when I get there, then I'm going to act like I'm in the kingdom. Do you follow what I'm saying? Are you with me? Have I lost you? Good. Weapons into gardening tools. Theophilus of Antioch, 412 AD, say to those that hate and curse you, you are our brothers. That's an interesting way to think about our enemies. Brothers. The Anabaptists, which this church actually being a Mennonite brethren church, um, comes out of the Anabaptist tradition in the 1500s. And uh, they, they took, it was right in the time where the Protestant Reformation was going on and you, you had all kinds of change going on in the church. And kind of in the middle of it all was this little group called Anabaptists and they took Jesus' words at face value and said, when, when he said to love your enemies, he really meant it and so we should do that all the time, no matter what it costs. Okay. Even in a world where it was so filled with so much violence, in the 16th century, tens of thousands of Protestants killed Catholics because they disagreed. And on the flip side, tens of thousands of Catholics killed Protestants because they disagreed with each other. Brothers and sisters in Christ killing each other. And in the midst of that, this little group of people called Anabaptists who said, no, no killing, because Jesus said, love your enemies, how can I do that? And thousands of Anabaptists were killed by both Protestants and Catholics because they held to those beliefs. Crazy, right? Crazy. Even when the church, in that time frame, adopted an idea of a just war, if the end gets to where I want it to get to, then it's okay to go to war. It's okay to fight. It's okay to kill your enemy if it gets us to the place we want it to get to. There's a guy named Dirk Willems, Colton's great, 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 great grandpa. Uh, a few more greats probably, <laughs> 16th century. This is a great story, you maybe have heard it, but I, I, it's worth repeating because it's so important to what we're talking about this morning. So he got captured by, uh, by some soldiers and, he, and he's held in a prison, it's an old castle and in the Netherlands I think, and he's held in a castle and, uh, and he's locked in there, and, and he es- figures out a way to escape. He ties some rags and stuff together, and he gets out the window, and he goes down. Like, it's just like out of the movies, like it really happened, right? Down he went, and he gets out, and he runs for his life, and it's the dead of winter. It's cold. Every castle, as we all know, has a moat around it, so he's got to run across the moat. It's frozen over, so he's just running. And, but as he was going out, a guard had seen him, and the guard runs down to chase him down to get him. And as the guard runs across the moat, the ice breaks, and he falls through the ice. And Dirk hears what's happening just behind him, and he hears the crash through the ice and the screams for help from the guard. And what does Dirk do? Dirk is an Anabaptist guy. What a dilemma. <laughs> it's like, I wish I was, I wish I was just a Protestant. <laughs> Maybe I can convert to Catholicism right now. 
I'm supposed to love him. So what did he do? Did he, did he, go, did he just walk away? Pacifism? No. Did he go back and push his head under? Violence? He was being held for no good reason, just because he believed something. He hadn't any harmed anybody. Did he walk away? No. Did he push him under and hold him? No. He pulled him out. And then the soldier got out and rearrested him and put him back in prison. They believe that you should love your enemies at all cost. Dirk died at that by the hands of his enemies. He was killed for his faith. I think if you ask, would you pull your wife out of the frozen lake or moat? We don't have a lot of moats around Calgary. Would you, for, would you pull your wife out of Saw Gary's like, nope. <laughs> yeah, no, we would, right? We'd pull our wife out. We'd pull our spouse out. We'd pull, we'd pull our friend out, but we'd pull our enemy out if we know that they are going to come out and harm us. I want to read this little passage here from a book by Ronald J. Sider. He says, there's clear evidence from successful nonviolent campaigns that courageous nonviolent resistance sometimes moves the hearts of hardened soldiers. So this is in the Philippines in the 80s. When a million Filipino citizens dared to stand in front of the tanks sent by the ruthless dictator President Marcos to crush them, the soldiers hesitated. One eyewitness reported, the soldiers atop the armored carriers pointed their guns of every make at the crowd, but their faces portrayed agony. The soldiers did not have the heart to pull the triggers on civilians armed only with their convictions. I'll read that again. The soldiers did not have the heart to pull the triggers on civilians armed only with their convictions. And then he goes on to say, Praying nuns and unarmed civilians conquered a vicious dictator. Wow. Isn't that awesome? It certainly doesn't always happen like that, but there's moments in time where that a, a third way does profound, makes a profound difference. Martin Luther King Jr. made incredible impact in America. What a change we have especially in the southern states of America because of him and his words, impact the way the world works, I think. It's worth taking a little look at what he says. You know, and that loving your enemies thing, that was a big deal for him. And he preached, and he preached so well. I love listening to him preach. And he talked about that, those three words, love your enemies. He talked about that all the time. Here's some of the quotes from his sermons. We adopt the means of nonviolence because our end is a community of peace within itself. I mean, and he lived in a time where people were killed because they, you know, pushed back, right? But he chose nonviolence anyway. If peace in your nation, in your community, in your family, in your home is the goal, then why do we think that hate or violence is the way to achieve it? Another quote. Now there is a final reason I think that Jesus says, love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power and there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. Just keep being friendly to that person. Just keep loving them and they can't stand it too long. 
Oh, they react in many ways in the beginning. They react with the guilt. They react with guilt feelings. Sometimes they'll hate you a little more at that transition period, but just keep loving them. And by the power of your love, they will break down under the load. That's the love you see. It's redemptive. And this is why Jesus says love. There's something about love that builds up and is creative. There's something about hate that tears down and is destructive. So love your enemies. A redemptive power. I'll end. Yeah, you guys can come and get ready. You guys will do the last song. I'll be right back up. Take a seat for a sec. One more story to tell you before we close. So in World War World War I, 1914, I believe, um, on Christmas Eve, and a lot of you guys have heard this story before, but I want to end a little differently with it tonight. The troops, the British, and the German troops were in the trenches fighting. Horrific war. Christmas Eve came. The gunfire died down. And then the Germans started singing Christmas carols in German. And the British listened, and they could hear it from across the trenches through the no-man's land, right? And so they started to sing back, or join in even, with ones they knew the tunes. The tunes were the same, but they spoke in different languages, and they sang Christmas carols together. And then there's an account where a guy, he said, and I watched, we watched to see if anyone would move or risk and one guy did he stood up in the trench and he got up and he walked across no man's land and the Germans came out and the British came out and they exchanged gifts of cigarettes and cigars shots of whiskey from a flask pins and little medals they'd have They sang together, and they celebrated Christmas Eve together. And then they went back to their sides, and in the morning, they kept shooting. I have a poster in my office, if we can get that poster on the slide. A good friend of mine gave this to me, and says, a humble proposal for peace. Let the Christians of the world agree that they will not kill each other. See, here's the interesting thing about the Christmas truce story in World War I. The Germans, most of those soldiers were Christians, Lutherans. The British, most of them were Christians too, Anglicans. Now, we forgive them for being Anglicans, <laughs> Lutherans, <laughs> teasing. They're Christians. If the if, if the British had said, you know what, I'm not going to kill my enemy any longer. And if the Germans had said, you know what, my, I know my leader told me I've got to kill those guys, but I refuse to do that because I'm a Christian as well. I wonder if it would have fizzled out. If the Christians of the world could agree, I think we'd have a real good start on changing the world. We live in a time with a lot of hate, globally, locally, 
on Canyon Meadows Drive and in our own homes, right? Maybe it's the neighbor who calls the bylaw officer on you all the time when you do something wrong. Maybe it's the guy who lets his dog take a crunch on your lawn and ticks you off. Maybe it's the co-worker that um, always takes the glory. Maybe it's the old business partner that really screwed you over. Maybe it's the spouse that hurt you so deeply. Maybe it's the dad who left. Enemies everywhere. But as we've seen through the arc of time over 2,000 years, we've seen people grab onto that idea of loving. Not just sitting by, not being violent back, but a third way. And so that's just my encouragement to you. To think about a third way to go about living life. So, thanks for joining us. Um, if you would like somebody to pray with this morning, for any reason at all, we'll have prayer people up at the front. Um, please take use of them if you'd like. So glad to have you here, and see you next week. Thanks.